0: Ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High
1: fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Up and away. in the marlins
0: hall of fame august 15th we are back with outside the box with jeff conine i'm arm layton he of course is jeff conine and we got a lot of things to talk about today from what was supposed to be the the new face of baseball uh, Testing positive for PEDs, 80-game suspension. Really interested to get your thoughts there. And then also, kind of sticking with the trend, Jeff, I wanted to talk to you about the best teams from your playing time. You know, just doesn't mean World Series, but the most talented teams that you played against. You have some teams prepared for us, and then we're going to mix in some other conversation as well. Uh, I have no idea who you're going to bring to the table here. I know 03 Yankees isn't one of them because you beat them, I thought you might bring them to the table, but Yankees is not going to be one of them.
1: Yankees. Well, that Yankees team is not going to be one of them. Um, Ooh. Okay. Okay. That Yankees team is not, but uh, there might be some
0: others uh, in the mix for sure. Very excited to, uh, to get your thoughts there. And we'll we'll start with the tattoo stuff because that was the news that kind of shook baseball in, in, in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of, perspectives I want to get from somebody like you on this uh, as just a 20 year professional baseball player, because there's so many layers to this. And and I want to start with the team side of it, because that's something that you always harp on, uh, you know, as, as a leader yourself through your years in the clubhouse, the importance of that. It's no secret that Tatis has had some maturing to do, but he's 23 years old. And, you know, some of the growing pains in the early going, we kind of just Chalk those up to what they were growing pains, right? You know, last season you and I sat down, we talked about Manny Machado and Tatis kind of blowing up at each other. And you said that stuff happens. It just doesn't usually happen on camera. It's not that big of a deal. And it didn't really seem to be that big of a deal. It kind of subsided from there, but then Tatis breaks his wrist on a motorcycle. And the question was, Hey, uh, how did that happen? You know, how'd it go down? And, but basically he responded, which time, which alluded to multiple motorcycle accidents for the $300 million player. Now he's about to come back from a broken wrist and test positive for a performance enhancing drug. Uh, the, The Padres came out and basically just hung him out to dry. Right. And that was pretty, not surprising, but at any time you see teammates come out and say something like that, it shows you really where they're at. They're fed up. And I want to start there. You read some of the quotes from A.J. Prower, from some teammates as well, from Musgrove, uh, Clevenger. What do you think about you just where the team is at on this? And you know, is Tatis in a place now where it's going to be hard to, to earn the respect of his teammates? Or was that more of a frustrating breaking point for a team that could have really used an MVP candidate back here on this playoff run?
1: Well, I think uh, you're definitely going to see some backlash from the team on this one right here, especially from the front office. You got look what they did at the trade deadline. They went out and got arguably the best player in all of baseball to come help them down the stretch because they knew they get Juan Soto in the lineup. They knew that Fernando Tatis Jr. is coming back from injury and you get that three headed monster of him, Machado and and Soto in the same lineup. I mean, that is that has greatness written all over it. Yeah. So for, them to squ- for him to squash that by coming back so quickly and testing positive for something, and now he's done for the rest of the year and well into next year as well, probably about the first month of next year. I mean, I'd be pissed if I was a front office person for that. I'd be pissed if I was a teammate, uh, knowing that we're gonna turn this thing around and wild card, you know, they're out of the race, of course. Dodgers are running away with that division. But <clears throat> when you look at the wild card, they're right there in it and Like we've talked about so many podcasts before, it's not about the best team at the end of the season. It's the hottest team. And I could have seen this Padres team, and they still might catch fire without Tatis in there. But uh, with him and and the other two guys, that that offense would have been absolutely devastating going into a postseason. Uh, I
0: can see where all the backlash is coming from. So from a player's perspective, cause I agree. I mean, we, we talked about that on the just baseball show, the, the three guys there, back to back to back. I don't think there there's a more devastating trio in baseball. And I don't know when the last time we've seen a, a trio that devastating, especially with the level at which Machado is playing at, which is he's sitting as well as we've ever seen him hit from a player's perspective here. You know, this is a 23 year old kid and you, you, you know, have a lot of guys that are 30, 33. And it's funny because Machado at one point was that young kid, not making mistakes to this degree, but was kind of the bad boy that a lot of teammates were frustrated with. And now Machado all of a sudden has turned into this leader and it's Tatis on this Padres team that seems to be the frustrating piece here. I'm sure you've been a member of teams through the years that have had that super talented, frustrating young player because of the way that he carries himself and things like that. Is this something that you know you think could could be detrimental to the team long term to deal with? Is it something that you know you don't really worry about it because it's on the field and and if he's not best friends with everybody off the field, it is what it is. Doesn't seem like he's a bad guy. He just seems like it seems to be the trend. Is it's not about you. That was what was said to him last year in the dugout. That's what was said by Mike Clevenger and Joe Musgrove. Is it's it's not about him. It's about the team. Um, and for a twenty three year old who you know, maybe doesn't really understand how hard it is to win at this level. And I think you start to realize that as as you get older and you don't have a championship and you realize how special it is to try to get one, that his best chance might be in his early 20s and it, it, he might be squandering it now. How do you think the team responds to that long term, though? He's going to be back next year, 30 games in, and he's going to be an integral part of their ball club. How does that work? kind of? How does that dynamic kind of work for you, you think? Uh, well, if you got hold- a guy in there.
1: You know, the the GM came out and said after the motorcycle accident and after the other discrepancies last year with Machado and things that they've had troubles with him, that they were hoping for maturity. They were hoping for a a kid to mature and realize his superstardom status and his leadership ability on that team. But instead, he came out and said, this seems like it's a pattern, like it's a pattern of uh, failures and Two things could go on here. I mean, one is, okay, undoubtedly one of the most talented players in the game. You get him back after suspension next year, he helps you win. And you could trade him away at some point for a boatload of prospects if you don't think that he's going to gel in your clubhouse ever. Or he could come back after this. Listen, I don't give the guy any break. 23 years old, but he was, he's been in the big league game forever because his dad was a major league player, a good major league player for a long time. And he grew up in my era, so he knew about all this stuff and how to uh you know deal with it. And he knew that well, by the way, I, I read an interesting thing in the New York Post about his uh his claim of uh treating ringworm with a that, that was gonna be my class was- four ana- anabolic steroid. I mean uh,
0: that was, gonna happen, my, that, that was going to be my, that was going to be my next question for you is uh, I, you know, I was expecting the GNC excuse, you know, Oh, it was, just, I just right. got it. At the tainted. Something's tainted. I don't know. No. So he Googled, um I guess the wrong drug, essentially uh, it was like a couple letter difference. Cause they're all weird, weird words. And I think he tested positive for cost and it was supposed to be something else, whatever it is that that's just not a thing. Right. I mean, like you're, you're a big leaguer. At any level, if, if you're a big leaguer, no matter you're a $300 million player or a $3 million player, you have so much at your disposal that you're not accidentally taking the wrong drugs, right? Like, By that's the just, way, you know, did he
1: just call up Walgreens and say, hey, I need this? And they gave it to him? the A yeah. doctor had to prescribe it. <laughs> yeah. A doctor right? had to prescribe it. So is the doctor going to say, what's this for? Or is he going <laughs> to just say, give me some of this. I need it. No. I mean- the doctor is not going to prescribe him an anabolic steroid. I'm sorry, it's not, yeah. it's not going to happen.
0: No, and a, and a doctor is probably smart enough to say, hey, this will show up in your drug tests. Hundred in- percent trouble. Um, Hundred <laughs> percent. So before we move on to you know more positive things, I do want your your perspective on on the long term outlook of of Fernando Tatis in a vacuum now, right? What's really frustrating for me as someone young covering the game and wanting to see it grow and there's a lot of indications that that things are going well in baseball attendance has been up month over month ratings have been pretty good uh youth participation's really strong but fernando tatis jr was supposed to be that face that marketable face because we've talked about how Baseball has lacked that. And we love Mike Trout, but Mike Trout doesn't want to be that guy. Right. He will. And I respect that, but Tatis was the loud outgoing, you know, guy that you can kind of market everywhere. You go to our YouTube channel. uh, For those that are watching YouTube, you go to our channel right now. Tatis is front and center on there. I mean, this was kind of the new wave in the face of the new wave of the game. You've seen players both really damage their, their, Persona and the way they're viewed by the game as a whole, by the way they handle this kind of thing. But I, we've also seen players from your era kind of reclaim some of that, I guess, status within the game. Of course, you're not going to be a Hall of Famer, but you can still be a respected player who people don't always just hit you with the steroid thing. I think of Andy Pettit, I think of Jason Giambi, guys that kind of owned it and pushed forward. Prove that they can play without it. I don't think anyone's doubting that Tatis is a great baseball player with or without the juice. Do you think that this is something that he can kind of recover from? Or is this always going to taint his his image to a degree?
1: Uh, I think to a degree, especially for the naysayers out there, they're always going to point to this as, um, especially this year, after what they did at the trade deadline to go after Soto and to put together uh, a monster um, to try and win a postseason. Well, um, but I will say on the other side that health, uh, games played and numbers account for a lot. So if Tatis Jr. comes up after this, he's healthy, he puts up huge numbers and does that consistently over the next few years, most people are gonna forget about this. They're gonna think about Tatis, the superstar, and uh, you know they know he's gonna get more scrutiny now, he's gonna get tested more than anybody and, when he pushes past this and goes and puts up a bunch of numbers,
0: then they'll be forgiven. Forget. Probably. How much does a player care when they have $300 million to their name? Depends on the player. Some care a lot and others don't care at all. I think that'll be the big question to answer. And and we'll only know by how he responds to this, because guess what? Even with the 80 game suspension, the way the contract is structured He only loses out on $3 million. So he's got 327 more still coming his way. Uh, And he doesn't lose too much there. So it should be interesting to see, you know, kind of what his, what his approach is to to how he wants to respond to this. So we talk about some of the best teams and and this Padres team, uh, you know, not one of some of the best ever, but it, it had a chance to be, when we look back 10 years from now, whoa, they had those guys together and that still could be that, but you've got some teams from the nineties, early two thousands that have been maybe some of the best that you've ever seen. Where do we start? Are we going to go from best? Is there a best to like, you know, number five to number one, or are we like, are they all kind of just in the same ballpark tier one teams here?
1: Um, I don't know. I think there was one team in multiple years that were head and
0: shoulders above everybody else for me. Okay. We'll save that one. Let's start with the other ones.
1: All right. Well, you know, being uh, in the National League East, um, you obviously have to look at the Atlanta Braves uh, for some of the best teams that I've ever played against. And being in the National League East, that means that I played more game against the Braves than any other team. Uh, Because interleague was, yes, it was, instituted back in 97 so we got to go outside the division a little bit but you played more games in your division than any other division so we got to see the Braves more than anyone else and uh, when you look at you know pitching staffs and putting together a dominant pitching staff when you've got Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz at the top of that and then put in uh, you know you got a Kent Merker and you've got a um, uh, Steve uh, Avery and uh, you know four and fives were could have been twos and threes on other teams, and they still had that kind of rotation in Atlanta. You know, and then the Chipper Jones era, when uh, probably the the most cut, clutch greatest player I've ever seen play. I mean, I hated wow. hated to have Chipper Jones up the plate with a game on the line in the late innings because. I, to me, he was—he just handled it as well as anyone ever has. And you got Andrew Jones in the outfield. So I don't know specifically the years that they were had all those guys together in their prime, but we're talking, you know, uh, uh, 96, 95 was an amazing team. 96 was an amazing team. Uh, you know, they won 14 titles in a row. So you can almost take your pick at uh, the quality that the Atlanta Braves threw out there for that long a time.
0: Yeah, losing to the Yankees in 96 uh was was pretty crazy. They lost in 6. In that series because and that team was was silly. Uh we, we talk about the pitching and also to have a young Chipper Jones, uh we talk about Fred McGriff and what, what he was able to do there and a guy that we've talked about so many times who should be a Hall of Famer uh on this show and uh when you look at the pitching staff is there a staff that really ranks up there in in your lifetime or at least your, your playing lifetime with Smoltz, Maddox, Glavin, Avery. uh, Like, is there anything that really compares to, to that since 1990? Uh, I mean, really, really hard.
1: (laughs) Three hall of famers. You got three hall of famers on, on the pitching staff. They were together for eight or 10 years. I mean, that's unheard of to keep guys together that long. Um, I will say the only thing that might've hurt them a little bit was the back end of their bullpen mm-hmm. they Had Woolers for a while, who had some of the best stuff that I've ever faced, but was kind of inconsistent and he didn't last that long. He didn't have a great career as far as closing games for the Braves. Um, longevity wise, especially with those three, but I'll put that, that, that three there's, there's never been, or may never ever be another three pitchers that, well, just the way the, the, the contracts are structured now and the way the game goes with the, the salary escalation. You won't be able to afford you those. Three. You can't keep three guys like that together for the amount of time that the Braves did. So that was uh, unique in our game.
0: So the last thing I'll ask on them specifically is, you know, how, how, how much luck goes into winning a World Series? I know there's so much that isn't luck, but for that Braves team, they never won one, right? I mean, they never won a World Series that core so how, how how do they not win a world series i guess it's, for lack of a better way to phrase it how much luck are they won in 95 right that's yeah, it they won one yeah they won mm. one in 95 excuse me um but but how did how they not win more? that was a that was a well it was a strike shortened
1: season um but we still played 144 games that's yeah. that's totally legit i was thinking of um you know what happened to the expos after '94 season? They had. I was a team I was you about. Too. They were one of the greatest teams uh, ever put together, that uh, you know got cheated out of going to a postseason, and I think they would have
0: won the World Series that year. They were that good. I and I, I'm excited to ask you a little bit more about that team, but like to win 100 games like three years in a row, win 95 plus five or six years in a row, and they only win the one World Series in '95. Is it that hard to to repeat? Is that the big challenge is the if you're really good, you'll get one. But is it just almost impossible to repeat with a core like is That's what makes the Giants so amazing, by the way, the, the, the 2012, that run of the Giants or before that. Is it just re- repeating that makes it so hard? I mean, both of your World Series teams were overachievers in, in a lot of respects. I know. Oh, three more than 97. And we didn't really get a C see a chance for them to run it back in 97. So it's hard to answer from that lens, but, or 98, I should say, is it just one of the hardest things to do is repeat? Is that why we saw the Braves kind of go through that, that quote unquote lull in the postseason after that? Yeah, it's really
1: hard. I mean, uh, you know, and like I said, the best team doesn't win the world series, the hottest team does. So uh, there's theories that, you know, the Braves, the National League East was not very strong during their run of 14 straight division titles. So they played the last two weeks for just nothing, really. There was no competition. They had such a big lead. They kind of coasted into the postseason. You got guys that are starting to already manage their pitch counts and kind of just get lined up for that postseason run where us as a wild card, I want it twice or we won it twice as a wild card. We are battling to the very end to try to get into the postseason, So we had momentum building up into that. We had big weeks going up into the postseason, So we hit the ground running as soon as we got to that first series. And I think that was uh much more advantageous as far as you gotta win 14 games, you know? And that for us, I thought, and that was my theory at the time and I still hold true to that, is that the teams that are running away at their division they coast in and they have to restart it almost. They have to get it going again for the postseason. Whereas the teams that really had to fight to get there, they're better off for the run, the, the postseason run.
0: And I wonder if the Dodgers are kind of that modern version of that now. Uh, I, I guess modern is probably the wrong word since 96. I'd still consider modern, but you know, the more recent example of that is, is the Dodgers. Cause they, except for last year, but they've tend to run away with the division a lot of years and, they always seem to come up short in the postseason. Besides, they're short in 2020 season, and Doesn't I know count. you don't like that one. And I don't. I don't really count it either. I, I ca- don't count it as a strong. It's hard to to really put into terms what we should call it. Uh, it, it counts, but not right. the same. Right, not the same. Right. I mean, it, it's it's just not the same. Uh, what is the other team that we're gonna look at here? Um. Another well, I, I got to
1: give an honor to mention that 1994 Expos team. Um, they had uh, a phenomenal pitching staff, uh, they had a great closer, all the harm hallmarks of a dominant team. They had the best outfield maybe I've ever seen in baseball put together with Moise Salou, Marquise Grissom, and Larry Walker and Wright. Um, you know, they had uh, Ken Hill on the mound, they had um, um, that Oven. Pedro guy
0: was pretty yeah, good. The
1: Pedro guy was pretty good. Uh They had uh, Jeff. Who's the lefty? Jeff You uh, I Jeff not even know who that was is. He a, had a
0: 299.
1: Just a solid, consistent lefty that, you know, would throw you off. And it's just, uh I don't know that team was athletic and they were fast and uh they could pitch and they were young and they were hungry. So, you know, I am kind of sad that they didn't get their chance. And I know, they really wanted their chance to finish off that season to see because they had. I mean, how big a lead did they have going into August? They were. <clears throat> you could probably pull it up, but they were up by.
0: They were seventy-four and forty. Seventy-four so, and forty. I mean, which is outrageous. And what what do you think the trickle down is, or, or the butterfly effect of that season being cut short? If the Montreal Expos win a World Series or even make a deep playoff run they might earn more fans for life from that run, right? Do, it's do possible. You think, do you think baseball is still in Montreal if they – I know that's a like a really big assumption to make, but is there any chance that you think baseball could still be in Montreal if that season's not canceled? I don't think so. I'm glad I you said that. So. I was hoping that would be the answer.
1: Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, as as great as that team was, and they had some other really good teams uh, as well, that, that fan base just – it's a hockey town. It will always be a hockey town. Uh, baseball, they played in just an absolute horrific stadium. Um, you know, the, the Stade Olympic, Olympique uh, or whatever. Uh, the yeah, Olympic Stadium was just awful. Um, they would have had to have had huge influx of money to get a new stadium. Um, TV, it's just it's just a hard market to thrive in. And that's why they're not back. That's why they're not
0: there. It makes me feel a little bit better, weirdly, just because those butterfly effects things, uh, you, you know, you look at one thing kind of how it can impact a long-term domino. And, uh, I agree. I mean, it does look like baseball was, was really struggling there. Their, their crowds were kind of Marlins-esque at times, worse at times. And, oh, worse. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and just really, really depressing there too. And, and I think Washington, you know, DC has been a little bit better uh, overall in terms of being a, a baseball town there. Uh, That team, you talk about the best outfield, Alou, Grissom, and Walker. What other outfield could compare with that? Because Alou had a 989 OPS that year, hit 340. Grissom had a 771, but he played great defense in center and also swiped 36 bags. And then Larry Walker, Hall of Famer, 981 OPS at 322. Uh, What's one that can compare to that to you if that's one of the best? defensively I don't think any any of them um just
1: they were so good defensively Larry Walker for me you know I've always said he's probably one of the best athletes I've ever seen play our game um just I mean this he's a big dude man he's 6'3 225 230 and could run could throw had one of the best arms you're ever going to see could hit for average hit for power Um, and Moises was the same way I mean he just uh, could do everything well and Grissom you know, I put just a tick behind
0: Andrew Jones is probably the, the best wow. ever that I've that I've seen. He was wow. that good. He was I, that good. People just don't don't know what they don't know. Right. Like if, if you didn't watch Grissom play um, to know how good he was defensively. Also, by the way, you know, he stole 75 bases back to back season. 76 and 78 was the exact amount. 91 and 92. flat out fly. Yep. <clears throat> that is unreal. What's the next ball club?
1: Um. You know, if you look at consistency and some of the, the, the best teams to play, you got to go with the Cardinals uh, right up there as well. Uh, late 90s, 2000s, they made the playoffs. It seemed like they are in the run or in the first place every single year. And, you know, you look at their lineups with Bernard Gilkey and Ray Lankford, um, uh, Jim Edmonds, Mark McGuire, uh, pitching staffs with Chris Carpenter and um, – Oh, I was watching a highlight the other day. Um, he escapes me now, but uh, tall, right-handed dark hair was was there every year. solid, solid staff. but you know, those teams were always uh, some of the most professional. They played the game the right way. They have the best fan base. You know, you go into St. Louis and you know that you're gonna just get, you're gonna have your hands full no matter what because but I love playing there. I love going to St. Louis. I love playing in front of those fans because they appreciated great baseball. They didn't give a crap. You know, uh, if you made a great play as an opponent, they're gonna cheer for you. Yes, yes, great play, all right, let's move on. But they adored their Cardinals, you know, and uh, you know that's why I thought it was such a uh, a big story when Pujols left after the 10 years that he had in baseball and to leave that town, uh, to go somewhere else. I just, I, I would have never imagined that in a hundred years that you could leave St. Louis after doing what he did
0: in that 10 year span. And it, you know, didn't go great for him. And, and, and I am glad to see him back there for the last hurrah. And, you know, we didn't know how it was going to look for Pujols this year. And two homers yesterday, I texted you. I mean, he's, he's doing stuff at least like he's, he's, he's a positive player, uh, which I didn't know if he was going to be that, uh, but what he did in St. Louis, we've talked about one of the best stretches ever. What year would you exactly peg uh, for, to be like that best, that best team? For for the Cardinals, uh,
1: well, that o four team was was really good
0: um they won it in oh six, right? It was two thousand and four they lost, right and then oh six they won, which is funny because they won eighty three games that year um, but in two thousand and four they won one hundred and five games got swept by the Red Sox. that team had. 24-year-old Albert Pujols, who had a 1,072 OPS, Scott Rowland, who had a 1,000 OPS, Jim Edmonds, who had a 1,061 OPS, and then also former teammate of yours, Edgar Renteria playing short, Um, and then the pitching, Matt Morris, Jason Marquis, Jeff Supon, Chris Carpenter, and then the closer, Jeff Isringhausen. It seemed like each team had like different strengths, though, because McGuire yeah. obviously misses that club by a few years. He was really darn good for a long time. We talked about him uh, last episode. Um, Larry Walker, at 37 years old, a part of that team down the stretch, too, and then Yadier Molina was breaking it at that point as well. Um, I'm trying to think, what is there a specific year that really stands out to you with that team? Because 2002 – they also had a really really loaded ball club as well.
1: I was in the American League 2002 so I don't really see them as much. Um I thought that 04 team was phenomenal. Um and you know what they they just had a system that put the right players in the right positions for success. And I can't remember the, the stretch they had, but even that game they won 80 that, that year they won 83 games, they didn't have like a sub 500 season for i don't know some ungodly amount of time they had winning seasons like every I, wanna, I can't remember the exact stat but i was like what they didn't have an under 500 season for that many years it's insane that that organization as much turnover as baseball has that they draft the right players they develop the right players and they put them all together and they win every single year and i had i remember having an interview a long time ago and now it's, it's the Tampa Bay Rays. You know, you look at them and what they do and how they do it every single year with the lowest payroll in baseball, but the Cardinals is like,
0: what are they doing differently that everyone should be emulating because they, they win every single year. It's, it's unbelievable. They're doing it again this year. And I can tell you from even the the prospect lens, they're drafting kids out of high school that are already in double a 21 year old Jordan Walker, first round pick out of high school. He was a Duke commit. Um, very, very set on going to Duke. They offered him way over SWAT and said, let's try it. Risky profile rakes right out of the gate. Same thing with Mason Wynn another shortstop for them. Like they just seem to identify, develop and their system works. Um, what's funny is kind of sticking to the, to the world series hangover point. One of their only seasons where they finished under 500 was the year after they won the world series in 2007, uh, which is very funny because besides that they've pretty much finished over 500 almost every single year i've been alive which is a testament to what they're doing over there and and how well run that organization is what what amazes me is how they do it through turnover right like jeff lunhow was the guy there and then he ended up going to to houston no matter who they have there if there's a scouting director or as a gm or whatever someone comes back in it's plug and play with that franchise and uh that's not usually the case, right? What do you think it is that makes that franchise just kind of able to keep going no matter who's steering the ship? I don't know. I, I wonder if
1: they have like a secret room that everyone <laughs> gets indoctrinated and and they get the uh, the DNA like injected into their body. Yeah. Say, this is what you're going to do to make this team win because they follow it. And like you said, I mean, front office people change, players change, everybody changes, even ownership changes. So it's like what was the common denominator that they stuck to? Obviously, they had a plan that they stuck to that that was successful, and they they did it year after year after year. So I don't know if someone came in and like I want to be part of that plan, and they learned it. So right away they they stepped into it and were able to, you know, uh,
0: keep it up. I don't know, but um, one consistent's it, it's, been, it's been a uh, remarkable run. One consistent's been John Mosellock, So you got to give him credit. Uh, that guy as just now he's the president of baseball operations was the GM before i'd, I'd say he's doing something uh to to kind of it, properly indoctrinate those guys uh, and and girls for the better uh, in that organization um is there is there the top team still in the back burner who do we yeah, got still the top team um
1: but you got to you got to have a mention of maybe the 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 greatest season ever at least wins wise, uh, that was Seattle Mariners that when we talk about best teams ever and not finishing the deal, uh, they had 125 wins in one season. That's absolutely insane.
0: Yeah. 2001,
1: 2001. That was Ichiro's rookie season who, you know, he broke right in and hit 350 or
0: something like that. Uh, Edgar Martinez, 966 OPS that season. Uh, and Edgar, by the way, that's a guy that I, I, it's it's funny because he was a DH. I feel like he doesn't get as much love from just the greater baseball fan community. But anytime I hear a former player talk, Edgar's one of the one of the names that comes up as one of the most impressive hitters. Um, can you talk a little bit about just Edgar? Because he was 38 that year. And had a 966 OPS. What made Edgar Martinez so good? And so ageless um, with the bat?
1: Smooth. Uh, His setup was so consistent. He was absolute command of the strike zone. I never see, you you never saw him take a a bad swing almost. You never saw him do the old ass out, you know, uh, hands to the ball. He was on everything. And, you know, you just marvel at his consistency. And you talk to him. He's just a very soft-spoken, quiet guy that just, knew how to play the game, and I think, you know, from the teammates that I knew that he had over the years with Seattle was one of the best teammates you're gonna ever, ever going to have. He's just that quality guy that you want to be around. You know, he oozes baseball, oozes that that knowledge, oozes that confidence, and that's the kind of guy I could even feel that from across the field, you know, that that guy
0: – I want to be around that guy because he is baseball. And yeah. That guy could flat out hit. How did this team win 116 games, though? Obviously, he was really freaking good and you know, all the things you just said. Ichiro, pretty darn good, hit 350 that year, had 242 hits. Brett Boone weirdly had the most insane season ever. He hit 331 with 37 homers and 141 driven in. But like I'm looking at the team, obviously that group there helps a lot. Pitching wise, it was Freddie Garcia, Jamie Moyer, Paul Abbott. Like I'm just wondering how this team did it. Like, how did they win 116? You know, it's, I said one twenty-five,
1: one sixteen. Um, it's one of those seasons where it, it kind of builds on itself, you know. And I think they just got so much confidence going toward the middle of that season. They 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 believe they're the best team, and they played like it. And they and didn't, you know, they they they
0: got bounced in the second round of the playoffs that year. I think they went to the they lost in the championship series four uh, one to the to the Yankees. Yeah, so, John Olerud, Olerod, Olerud, Olerud. Yeah, Olerud, one of the most underrated careers out there. Yeah, guy a, talk f- about talk about you a guy don't like that more. was
1: you better barely ever heard from it. I mean, he didn't speak. He didn't he speak. He just raked. He just raked and played defense. That's all he did. He didn't talk. He didn't like. He
0: didn't showboat. He never watched a home run. He's just the most quiet, silent assassin you're ever gonna see. Is that why nobody really talks about him ever? Because for a guy with 2,200 hits who hit 363 one season, and I know you don't like war, but just through the lens of just where he stacks up, he stacks up with Hall of Famers, 58.2 war. He was a stud, man. I'm telling you. And he had one of the why smoothest Why have I barely heard swings? of this guy?
1: Smoothest lefty swings. Google some of his at-bats and just how smooth he was with the, at the plate. Effortless kind of every almost like a JD Drew
0: type swing but more consistent. Wow. I'm sold on that. And are we up to team number 1 now? Yeah, I
1: mean um Yeah, let's go with team number 1 and it's and you can take your pick. Um 98 99 2000 2001 Yankees. <clears throat> Let's go. They won. They won four out of five World Series in that stretch. We're just talking about how hard it is and how hard it's been to repeat as champions. Um, They won four out of five years, and I got to Baltimore in '99, and obviously I'm in the American League East, so I play a majority of my games against the Yankees. So those teams were just the most professional. played the game the right way. There was no showboating. There was no egos. It was just a crazy assemblage of all-stars at every position that played together like a team. And how do you think that was possible with the personalities, Joe Torrey? That's where I give him all the credit in the world, is to be able to manage 25 personalities like that in one clubhouse who had every right to be, hey, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that but you never saw it on the field. Uh, you never heard about them fighting in the clubhouse. You know, they might have scuffles here or there, but I think Joe Torre was the guiding light um, for that organization. And yeah, you could have run those guys out there and won games, no, no doubt. But I think he was the master at keeping them in check in that
0: clubhouse. 2001 Yankees might be my favorite uh, because you got Alfonso Soriano in the mix there, who's, I just loved Alfonso Soriano as a player, just so much fun to watch. Jorge Posado, Tino Martinez, Alfonso Soriano, Derek Jeter, Scott Brosius, who had a pretty good year that year. Chuck Knobloch, who's interesting that he got that much run in, in left field for them that season. Uh, Bernie Williams, Paul O'Neill, David Justice. Uh, that's a pretty good team considering their pitching staff was Mike Messina, Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, uh, Orlando Hernandez, Ted Lilly, and then they had that, that decent closer, Rivera guy, uh, shutting things down. Um, I mean, you had to see them a lot because a lot because of Baltimore and and like, I know you're a big leaguer and you, you look at almost every team the the same, but when you have to go play them for a four game set, are you kind of like, ah, here we go? Or you know what? I actually
1: look forward to it because I loved their quality of baseball. I hated going there because we're going to get our asses kicked and it's going to be a four hour game every single time because. They took so many pitches. They were so patient at the plate. All of them really? just walks, they're taking their walks and fouling balls off. And they're just they're bulldogs at the plate and three and a half, four hour games every single time. But as a fan of the game, as a player, I appreciated
0: that team. Who do you think was was one of the more underrated players on that team? You know, obviously everyone always talks about Derek Jeter and he's he's well documented. There's a documentary ad on him right now. Uh, but you have Tina Martinez, you have Jorge Posada, you have Bernie Williams, you have a 35-year-old David Justice and also a 38-year-old Paul Neal, who were both quite productive for them, uh yeah. you know, down the stretch there. I look at Bernie Williams and just feel like that guy never got enough love. Is is that who sticks out to you, or is there someone else someone else you're kind of thinking? No, of? I was actually gonna say Bernie, just because um
1: talk about another guy that was very soft spoken, very um, uh, you know, he played guitar, he's super cool. Yeah. Uh, could fly on the outfield, played a great center field, clutch hitter, uh, switch hitter. You know, he was just that guy that that kind of was happy staying in the shadows, in the background of all those superstars, and doing his job year in and year out. And yeah, I think he was the most one of the most underrated and and underappreciated Yankees of that era, just because of that. Because he didn't care about being in the, in the spotlight, he didn't care about being in the limelight. He just wanted to do his thing and play his center field and. Uh, you know, go down as, as one of the better outfielders in Yankees history.
0: So staying on the Yankees trend, because you've seen Yankees teams that have come up short and you've been part of the reason why. Uh, And we've also seen plenty of Yankees teams that have won through the years that you were playing. And this Yankees team is floundering a little bit right now in the 2022 season, but they are far and away the best team in the, in the AL East record wise. Uh, But they have a lot of big personalities to manage. And I thought it was funny because everyone was calling for Aaron Boone's head last year. Now the Yankees are fantastic. And, you know, overall, there really hasn't been any questions there for a team like the Yankee, because it's, it's, it's the same story here. You have Aaron Judge putting up what is a historic season, but you also have big personalities all over from Garrett Cole to somebody like Giancarlo Stanton or there's Josh Donaldson. It's a lot of big personas on that ball club. How important is it to like for a team like that? would you say it's more important to have someone that manages a game well or that manages personalities well for a team like the Yankees well nowadays it's
1: there really is no managing a game much anymore with the dh now it's you throw your guys out there there's no double switches there's no hitting for the pitcher there's no you know you'll pinch hit every once in a while on matchup situations maybe but for, for me especially in the year for for New York, it's it's the clubhouse, it's all about the clubhouse. And Aaron Boone has his work cut out for him. Just being in New York, that says a lot right there. But now, like you said, you've got these monster personalities with monster contracts and uh you know, monster egos sometimes that that yep. need to be reined in and and all brought to the same page and and aligning
0: them to the same goal of winning a World Series. So <clears throat> that that for me is the most important. So before we get to the jersey. I want to talk about that a little bit because even through your brief stint in New York, um, you know, at the end there with the Mets, you've, you've been very vocal about, you know, how intense it is uh, when, when you and I talk about it, whether it's on on the podcast or just, you know, hanging out about just how much of a different beast it is to, to, to play in New York and to, to wear your mistakes and there's just a lot more accountability expected and there's a lot more results expected and no one really wants to hear any excuses it brings the best out of you or it can bring the worst out of you i I look at a joey gallo who i don't know how much he monitored that situation but they went out and they traded a a good amount of resources in terms of young players for joey gallo it didn't work for gallo new york he was he was not good there they trade him at the deadline over to the Dodgers. And it's only been eight games, but it is worth noting that in those eight games, he is has an OPS of a thousand. Uh he was hitting 159 in New York. And he he said in interviews himself, he felt like he couldn't go around the city. Um, he felt like he was a failure. He he just didn't feel comfortable here uh in New York and just just it really mounted on him. How much do you think that impacts certain players uh, playing in New York? People always say, oh, well, like, can he play in New York? How much validity is there to that? Um, and and I, I would just like to get your thoughts on that because you didn't have to wear it specifically with that Mets collapse. You were part of a larger issue with the Mets team uh, and you still had to feel it, I'm sure. Uh, but how much does that really impact players negatively if they're not the type to be able to handle that kind of pressure? Big time. Um, There are players that are built for that, that they
1: thrive on that, and there are players that want no part of that. Um, And sometimes when you get traded, you have no say in that, that the team trading for you, say the Yankees, wants to get you because you are absolutely crushing in Kansas City. Well, Kansas City is one of the easiest markets you're going to be able to play for. Those fans are there. They like the Royals. They're not accustomed to You know, they had the great run in 15, but other than that, it's been a long time. So they'll go out and they'll enjoy their time at the ball game, but you got no pressure on you. They're not going to boo you in Kansas City. But like you said, when you get to New York, no, no, no. Now you, you're on my team. You perform every single night or I'm going to let you know it. And they feel they have the right to let you know it, the New York fans. So some guys will, that's adversely, they'll, they'll go into a shell with that.
0: They can't handle that. And that will definitely affect their performance on the field. So are Yankees fans essentially hurting their own team and doing so? I know they can make the case that some players are pushed positively. I don't know. Or pushed positively. Some are pushed negatively. So,
1: you know, it's a, uh, you know, you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen type thing. I think that's what they feel that their team is like, like, Hey man, if you can't handle the pressure, get out. We'll, we'll get somebody else in here that can. Uh, that's a fan's perspective. I think just by, how do you it, think
0: you, know? you, you would have handled that at, at your peak? You know, like when you're, playing all-star caliber baseball. And uh, how do you think that would, have through the ups and downs, how would that have been for you as, as a guy that played, you know, more in the smaller markets through the years?
1: Yeah, but, you know, when, when I was in Baltimore, I'm playing in in Boston and, and New York 38 times a year against those teams 38 times yeah. a year because when we played in Baltimore, all those people would come down too because they had those stadiums. So I was a visiting visiting team 38 times a year against those two teams. So, you know, it didn't bother me. I was always I thought pretty good at when I got between the lines everything else went away and I you could were able to do on that? my focus on my job at hand um and I never did we didn't have social media back then I didn't watch the news you know none of
0: that stuff so if they said something bad about me I never heard of it because I never watched or read the newspapers so let's say you're playing now how do you, how do you dodge that is it, would you be a no social media guy would you just kind of be unplugged I mean
1: I've got every reason to be a social media guy, but I'm not. I just, you know, Fox wanted me to get a Twitter account when when I was broadcasting with the team, and I did. And, you know, we had a big push one series trying to get me followers. And, you know, I got like a 1,000
0: followers in one night or something like that. That's pretty crazy. But as a player, you you would have been probably pretty unplugged. Yes. Yeah. And you think that's for most guys, it's probably for the better? A thousand percent. Yeah. Doesn't I mean I
1: think it's it there's not much positive stuff that, no. can, that can go on in social media. I mean even if you're doing great you're going to have haters on there and some guys yeah. read that and they like they take it personal like it's yes. like it gets to them. So yeah.
0: I think it's all doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Twitter is a crazy place. Um let's let's talk about the the jersey because I see pinstripes again I'm going to guess it's a Yankees jersey yep it's a Yankees jersey yep. so I'm gonna try and guess who it is what 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 year time I'm guessing it's from the, the team that we maybe just looked at is it Bernie Williams by chance oh look at you bang <laughs> let's go 51 Bernie so, <laughs> I, so you know what my, my 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 trick is now is I just think about which guy you would want it on. Like you would want to autograph Jersey from like, wh- which guy is Jeff. Cause it, for you, it, it wasn't about like, Oh, this was the best player. It's who was a good player who was a, like a better person. So I'm, that's always my first thought is, is who are the guys that Jeff would want to want a signature from Bernie Williams. So we talked Maybe. a little bit about it, but is that someone that you, you got to know much at all through the years? Uh, Do you have any, any crossover with him? And, and when did you get this one signed?
1: Not really. Um, you know, like I said, he was very, uh, very quiet to himself. You know, I'd say hi to him at first base. And if we ran into each other by the cage, I'd talk to him a little bit. But uh, he was just a cool dude. You know, he was the guitar. He was always playing the guitar. And, um, you know, I saw him do some
0: charity things with the guitar and just was a cool dude. And I just uh, appreciated the way he played the game. And, when you look at like the Yankees in that mold, it's, it's funny because he seems like the kind of guy that wouldn't, you said he kind of like to hide in the shadows. He almost benefited from how big of a personality the other, his teammates had, he can kind of just hide in plain sight to a degree and, exactly. and play really good baseball though. This guy was an all-star what five years in a row. Um, that's, that's pretty hard to hard to do for, for anybody out there. It's a shorter span though. He, he played 16 seasons, but the first two were, were partial seasons really only played 14 full seasons if he had a couple extra years under his belt, we, we we might have a Hall of Fame case here, right? Yeah, I don't know what his final numbers were. Um, 2,336 hits, 287 homers, 297 career hitter. Um, and, and you mentioned great defense, right? You could rake. I could, I could rake, man. Just smooth. Both sides well, of the plate. So w- when you would get the, the ones at Yankee State, like were there certain stadiums where it was harder to get the si- signatures? Like were certain certain teams where it was harder to get the, the signatures or was no, it was kind just of, of it on the
1: player really yeah you know, I'd, I'd buy the jerseys myself and then I just send them over yeah you know, I I always try to ask them first like if I go out to batting practice early I'm like hey Bernie would you mind signing a jersey for me if I send it over and it's always yeah man go ahead so I just have the clubhouse guy run it over to them and, and he'd sign it sometime during the series and and bring it back over.
0: Last question for you on the on this episode is. You, know, you obviously came across so many different guys, and we continue to highlight all the jerseys that you've had signed, so many Hall of Famers or just incredible baseball players. I think we've talked about it briefly, but when you were first coming up, there's probably a lot of players that were on their way out who were legends. Um, was there one player more than than the rest that, like, you almost didn't even want to bother for an autograph. Like you're just like that guy's, yeah. I never thought I'd meet that guy or, you know, was there someone that almost intimidated you to a degree? Like it's hard to believe you're on the same, you know, playing field as them.
1: Well, I mean, I get to play George Brett when I first got called yeah, up. Yeah.
0: That's I, that's the best. Yeah. That's the best. He had, he
1: had two years left. Um, you know, I get to play a couple months with him. Really. I got called up at some tep- in September of 90. So I only played like three weeks then. Um, and then I got called up again in 92 for about uh, six weeks, maybe a month and a half. And that's my time that I got with George Brett. And, you know, I wasn't in autographs back then. I wasn't into the baseballs and cards and any of that stuff. And, you know, I had to have one of my teammates and, and my roommate on the road basically tell me that I needed to get a George Brett signed something because he's retiring and you're playing with George Brett and you need to have something signed by him. And I'm like, really? He's like... And I got thinking about it. I'm like, wow. Yeah. I mean, George Brett's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's a Hall of Fame baseball player. And I got to play with him. I should probably have him sign something
0: for me. So I did. Yeah. And which is awesome. And so was that like one of the first ones you ever got? Yeah. It might have been my first one ever. Because we had, he got his
1: 3,000th hit in Anaheim. We go back to Kansas City. And they have the big, you know, uh, celebration for him getting a 3,000th hit and all that stuff. And uh, like right after that. The season was almost over i I had him sign a bat and a
0: t-shirt for me that's awesome and later on i got a jersey signed as well where you got the bat and the t i mean you have so many bats back there it's outrageous (laughs) so i I, there's one day where we got to do like a a a shoot where we just go through all of your all of your signatures i can't even imagine what the uh what the ballpark would be of just just what the value is. It's priceless, all the stuff you have over there. And it's it's but pretty it's, awesome.
1: Yeah, it's priceless to me, but it's not worth much because it's all personalized. <laughs> yeah.
0: Which I know you don't care about, but uh it's it it like to cool. find
1: some some big collector named Jeff. I mean <laughs> it makes it even cooler. He might pay double or or but, with Niner as a nickname then then I'm I'm
0: golden. Yeah you got a better chance at Jeff I think than uh than Niner. But uh by the way, your son hit two homers over the weekend in one game. Uh heating up how's that been uh you know just kind of monitoring from from afar uh and and just watching your son play baseball making his way up to AAA, hopefully soon uh if you asked me he should be there already you don't have to comment on that uh but you know how do you manage the uh the the watching of your son now as he continues to kind of just head down that path you went down
1: it's rough for me, you know. <laughs> yeah. When he struggles, I struggle. When he yeah. succeeds, I succeed. And it's uh, I know exactly what he's going through. Um and you know, you, you just hope that he's okay mentally. And that's all I talked to him about is how you feeling? How you how you doing in your head? You know, and he's always he's always giving me the right answers, always tells me the right things. And I hope that's exactly how he feels. Um, because he handles it very well. Um, I would not have been able to handle some of the struggles as well and uh but you know it's what more can you ask for as a father that went through this this was my life <clears throat> and to watch him go through his life at what i did you know and i hope i hope and pray that he has the life that i had in this game because it's uh it was joyful and uh amazing and uh, i couldn't think of a better way to make a living than, than yeah. playing a game but um you know you hope uh he gets through it all the same way
0: and he's heating up. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him continue to do that. And uh, yeah, I know it's, it's, it's pretty interesting watching the father son dynamic and in and, and terms of, you know, you, I think you, you do it as well as any father who played the game, as I can see is without, you know, micromanaging what your kid does and, you know, really making it harder on them, just kind of letting them go, but, you know, checking in when you need to. And uh, I mean, you talk about how Griff's capable of doing things that y- you could never do on the baseball field. And and at the same time, the minor leagues are 10 times, I think, harder than they ever were. Uh, you know, just because of how much talent there is now. Even college, you got kids throwing a hundred. Um, it, it's just wild and the talent pool is is so vast. But, you know, the, the advantage of having just the 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 mental side of things with you is 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 really awesome. And uh it's been fun for me to watch, you know, just him continue and, and watch that dynamic as well. So uh, hopefully we'll keep rolling. Now we had a multi Homer game this weekend and then he'll be back hopefully on Tuesday or Wednesday to keep playing. And uh, we'll meet up in Jacksonville at some point uh, to, to catch a game out there, but uh, we'll meet up in in Miami. Yes. Watch a game there. Yes, absolutely. Because they need all the offense that they can get probably out of commission for the next week. Uh, but we will be back probably next week to talk a little bit more. I want to talk more O three 3 with you. I want to circle back to that. I went to Wrigley Field last week and it was a lot of fun uh, and it got me thinking. I wore a Florida Marlin shirt just to kind of remind everybody a little bit of, of <laughs> what happened there and what you guys did there. And uh, I'd love to go through some specifics. Um, I'm getting the the hip surgery done so I can't move. I might rewatch some O three 3 playoff games and have very specific questions for you coming up because I gonna have so much time to kill. I'll, I'll watch it again too, just so I Hopefully, remember everything. <laughs> hey, you sell your sure coming up next year. What? How many years? 20th yeah. anniversary next 20th year. 20th anniversary. Yeah, 2023. Holy crap! Yeah, that is nuts. Crazy. But your recall is insane. You're underselling your recall there. You remember some <laughs> specific pitches like few I've ever spoken to uh, that played, you know, back in the the late two or you know the early 2000s. But we'll talk about it then. Excited to rewatch some of it. I got to find my DVD somewhere. I know you probably have yours somewhere as well. Um, yeah, I just ran across it the other day. Uh, we'll we'll do a 2003 recap next week.